0: I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, reading verses 18 to 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Let's pray. Lord, this is, for some, this this may be a tall order. Give us the grace that we need to obey what your word says, help us to be mindful of the awesome and wonderful privileges that you have given us, that you have empowered us with, in which you sustain us, which you encourage us by, and let us likewise have an excellent, a noble, a commendable behavior among those that we sojourn alongside. Amen. You may be seated. I've titled this Christian Submission to Unchristian Masters, which is pretty similar to the last message uh, Christian Submission to Unchristian Authorities, because it really is the same theme and it's just the next logical thought. This series is focusing on Peter's practical instructions to the church based upon her position in the Lord. And that position, Peter began discussing in chapter 2, verse 4, and he uh, concluded it all the way uh, down in verse 10. And we took some time going through that. We looked at the Christian's position in the Lord. We saw that it began with anyone, absolutely anyone, who comes to the Lord and receives him, and is spiritually placed onto him by the power of the Holy Spirit with the result that they share in his eternal life and will share in his glory. And the rest of that passage looked at quite a number of awesome, quite astounding and marvelous truths and aspects of the life and glory that Christians possess. I was encouraged going through that passage. Having taken the church into the heavens and, and into these lofty heights by reminding us who and what we are in the Lord. But before we get too carried away, before we get ahead of ourselves, Peter has to sober us up just, just a little bit. And he has to remind us that Christians ought not to forget how they are to behave while they are a stranger on this earth, while they are a citizen of their earthly country, an employee to their earthly boss, and perhaps for for some, a Christian spouse married to an unchristian spouse. Why is it important that Peter brings up our behavior? I mean, doesn't he know that we're fully forgiven? Doesn't he know that that our salvation is secure in Christ, that we're fully forgiven of our sins? Doesn't he know that we are... Children of God, that we have an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance. Well, sure he does, because he's already told us that. He's gone over that in chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2, and it's precisely for that that he exhorts us. Because we are in Christ, he's exhorting, he's teaching us, he's encouraging us to act like Christ. And in the next passage, he's actually going to bring up the example of Christ, and I look forward to preaching that. But Peter knows that the conduct of the believer is a very, very important matter to God. And he's clued us in as to why it's important. If you look at chapter 2, verse 12, we're told to have an excellent behavior among unbelievers so that in the day of visitation they might glorify God. And we looked at how that meant God would be glorified as sinners see the genuine and the sincere change of repentance from ungodliness to godliness, from sin to righteousness, and how in that, in in our lifestyle, the gospel is confirmed and validated by a life of someone who once walked in darkness, now walks in light. That desires that once lusted after fleshly lusts have been replaced by desires for and and for the pursuit of holiness and Pursuit of godliness. And as much as we are pleading with our friends, with our families, with our neighbors, our co workers to turn to the Lord, to repent of our sins, Peter knows we ourselves must be doing the very thing that we are pleading, that we are urging for them to do. And it is an incredible testimony to the gospel, of the gospel. Uh, to the unbelieving critic when he is forced to admit that there is a definitive, when there is a genuine, when there is a sincere, undeniable change in the life and walk of a man or woman that they knew before Christ. And seeing who and what they are in Christ makes a certain undeniable impact. And the worst thing that we can do in our evangelism is, as we're trying to preach Christ, as we're exhorting someone to believe and, and repent and receive him is to preach Christ, but then have a life that is very un like Be it our desires, our speech, our temper, the things we watch, the things we joke about, our modesty, and especially in, in, in this text, our work ethic. Our, our, these things ought to reflect Christ in us. God is glorified when sinners see that definite change in someone they knew. That opens the door for them to hear the gospel, to hear about the Lord, and it gives them absolutely no excuse when they dismiss the Lord. Some will still dismiss them, but it grants them no excuse when they do. Now last time in verses 13 to 17, we looked at how a Christian has this Excellent behavior in the midst of unchristian authorities by what? What does he do to them? That that s word that we love, submit. The Christian has an excellent behavior in the uh, before unchristian authorities by submitting to them by recognizing their authorities, and God has ordained this for the order of. Uh, of, uh, for the sake of order, maintaining and establishing order to reward the good, to punish evil. God is the ultimate authority. He has established these institutions of men, of, of human authorities, ranging all the way from the king to the governor and, and even down to your local police officer. I don't know if I could include cross guards. But they are here for the sake of... Of order and to reward good and to punish evil and the Christian knows that even when an immoral man occupies this seat of authority, no matter who that king is, no matter who that judge is, no matter who that senator is, it doesn't mean that God has stopped being God. It doesn't mean that they somehow duped God or tricked God into allowing them to be elected or nominated or or placed there. Christian knows that. Our responsibility is to trust the system that God has put in place, to trust that God, that our God, that your God is big enough and powerful enough and smart enough and wise enough to sovereignly work through all circumstances, no matter what government you have, no matter which president you have, no matter which governor or boss or supervisor you answer to, I hope you see that the God of the Bible is the kind of God who can work through anybody, despite anybody. Now, Peter divides the command in two parts. In verse 18, he gives us the mandate to submit. And as I said, for some, this could be difficult to receive. And so to help them, to help us to encourage us to follow through and obey, he provides the motive. So the mandate to submit is in verse 18, and then he dedicates two verses, 19 and 20, to give us the motive to submit. Why? Why should we? Why ought we? So in verse 18, what, let's, uh, let's let's read what he says in verse 18. Doesn't, he doesn't hide. He just comes right out and says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Now notice, who's Peter addressing? Ser- servants. Servants. He's addressing those who are servants within society. Literally, this word means house people. And it could possibly be pointing to, uh, to, to, to what we would think of Butlers, you know what? Usually, when we think of the word servant, we think of of uh, some well dressed uh, man, you know, in a suit, holding a tray, who gets paid very a uh, lot, to do almost nothing. The, uh, we we may think of a well off butler. We, we may think of kitchen staff or the cleaning ladies in the employ of some ri- uh, old rich guy in the middle of a of a lost European villa. But what may startle you, what may offend you a little bit, what may offend your senses, is that this word is absolutely synonymous with the word doulos, and who knows what the word doulos means? Slave. So Peter is isn't just talking to the uh, those slaves and servants that would generally be respected. He's talking about the whole gamut of slaves when the Ro- roman republic began her conquests around 510 bc she began a practice of upon conquering her foes she would take the captives and force them into slavery and that would be the common practice for centuries and uh, there are varying figures at uh, uh, at best um, or a very conservative figure was that 25 to 40% of Rome were slaves. Uh, some have said 50%. Either way, it's that's a very very significant number. Slaves were the workforce of the Roman world. It's how things got done. They could and they could be well educated. They could serve as a family physician for uh, you know they could be a doctor for a family or they could be Digging trenches, they could be the doorman, they could uh, do very, very menial and hard things. There was a wide range to what slaves and servants did. And what is absolutely amazing is that the great majority, the vast majority of the early church were these converted slaves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. These God has chosen. And you've heard... you've heard. Uh, the, the, the gospel text where Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler what is, what is the punchline of, of that narrative it, what is it harder what is harder than a camel squeezing through the eye of a needle for a rich man for a noble for, for someone who is esteemed in the world for someone who, who has and does not have not It is harder for them to enter the kingdom of God. The church mainly comprised these converted slaves. And in the estimation of the world, these slaves meant very, very, very little. Now, some were privileged to have fair masters. Some were privileged to be valued as people. to to be loved, to be treated almost as as a child of the family. Uh, Some had the privilege of eventually being granted their freedom by their master. But for most, they were thought as nothing more than property. They were thought as nothing more than a tool that was to be used until it was expended, and then it would be tossed away like a piece of trash, and another would take its place. They had absolutely no rights and they were subject to whatever treatment they got from their master. They had no say. They had no appeal. They had no recourse. They had no representation. They certainly had no workers' unions to represent them when they were mistreated. Aristotle, we, we, we all uh, have heard Arist- Aristotelian quotes before. Everyone looks up to Aristotle. Listen, listen to what Aristotle said. And this, this was the mindset of the, of the Greeks, a slave is a living tool, and a tool is an inanimate slave. Uh, A Roman noble named Varro said, the only thing that uh, distinguishes a slave from a beast or a cart is that a slave can talk. A cart or a hammer or a chisel is a slave that can't say anything. A, A beast, a mule, a horse is a slave that can utter noises, but it's inarticulate, and then a man slave is, is a tool that just happens to be able to say words. They meant nothing in the world. and this is who Peter's talking to. And what does he tell them to do? Revolt against their masters, rise up, take what's yours, stand for your rights, demand fair pay, no, the call for them is to be submissive to their masters. And that's the second time he's brought up this word. The first time it came up was in verse 13. To submit to the human institutions, to your to your governor, to your king. This means to line up in formation. It's an attitude of being placed under a superior, under another's authority. It's the picture of a soldier lining up under his general or a citizen uh, bowing before his king. And I'm sure that Peter saying to these slaves to submit to your master. I'm sure that this was very difficult for a couple reasons. One, it would have been natural to assume that these Christian slaves had, you know, since they had become free in Christ. That's what the gospel preaches, isn't it? it would be natural to assume that for these slaves who have become free in Christ to also assume that they have the right to freedom from their masters. I mean, think about what uh, Peter has said so far, that they have they have been made citizens of heaven. Paul says they've been made citizens of heaven in Philippians 3.20. In Colossians 3.4, Paul says that when Christ, who is your life, your, your life is hidden with Christ, and when he, he is revealed, so too will you be revealed with him in meagerness, in humility, in shame. How, how will saints be, re, be revealed with Christ? In glory. In glory. And Ephesians 1 says that every saint, every saint has been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly Places. It's not a stretch at all to to assume that because they have this astounding freedom in Christ, that perhaps too they are free from their earthly masters. They have been made children of God. They've been in, indwelt and sealed with the Holy Spirit. They've made co-heirs with Christ. And we've even seen in the middle of chapter two that the church has been made a royal house, to, royal house, a royal priesthood, and Saints will one day judge the world and govern the world, and we'll judge angels. And just as they might think it didn't really matter whether or not they honored their earthly king, they probably began to think it didn't matter if they honored and obeyed their earthly masters, especially especially if they were cruel, if they were wicked, if they practiced double standards if they were unjust, if they were liars and cheats, wouldn't that be the temptation for you? To think that you're a... a, Submitting this guy is beneath me. I'm better than that. Secondly, because converted slaves were the majority within the church, some inevitably had to step into positions of authority and, and leadership within the church. Now suppose that when the excellent behavior of a believing slave is the means by which his earthly master discovers and hears and believes the gospel and he decides to go to his slave's church, imagine the awkwardness of him coming into church and find out his slave is leading the Bible study or his slave is up in the pulpit. Awkward. The master is now in a position where he has to be in submission to his slave's authority within the church, within the church. And, the question arose, what happens when the slave and master go back home? I could, I imagine some masters probably said, I'm going to a different church. But the apostolic answer to that question is that absolutely nothing has changed. In terms of their societal statuses, the master is still the master and the slave is still the slave. Consider uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 20-23, Paul says, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Rise up and revolt. Demand your right. No, he didn't say that. Do not worry about it. If you're able to become a free man, do that. For for he who was called in a Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is a slave. So if you're a slave, the reality is is that you're a, you're free in Christ. But if you're a free man in the earth, the reality is you're a slave to Christ. So either way, you're free and you're a slave at the same time. Paul's point, it doesn't really matter what your earthly status is. You were bought with a price to not become slaves of men, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. And Philemon gives us a great picture of this. That little book near, near the end of the, Old Test, of the New Testament, Philemon was a runaway slave from his master Onesimus, who just, the, uh, uh, Philemon just happened to run into the Apostle Paul, and he just happened to get saved. The only problem, well, it's not a problem, but it just turns out that Onesimus, the master, belonged to the Philippian church. And which apostle happened to found and spend some time in Philippi at the church there? The apostle Paul. So when Paul realizes that he knows the master and now he's he's led the slave this runaway slave to the Lord, uh, uh, Paul sends Philemon right back to Onesimus, Which in the Greek world, according to Greek law, do you know what the penalty for a runaway slave was? It wasn't a write up. It wasn't a, a slap on the hand and it wasn't, you know, time in, time out. It was execution. The, remember, the, the the Roman Empire was great. The, the economy and the infrastructure, the social infrastructure was greatly dependent upon slaves. And the last thing you want done is a slave revolt. Remember that movie Spartacus with Kirk Douglas? The, the last thing you want is a slave revolt and so you 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 put a pretty uh, strong discouragement like execution as a penalty, and that will dissuade the slaves from revolting. So for Philemon to go back home, that's a death march. That is a potential death march. Only Paul writes to Onesimus and says, Philemon is now a son of the faith to me, and by implication, he's your brother. Receive him kindly, and he says... If there's any debt that he owes, you put it on my tab. And and no one is going to require that the Apostle Paul pay his tab. So what he's, in essence, is saying, let let him off, forgive him, receive him. And what's amazing is tradition tells us that Philemon went on to become the pastor of the church in Philippi. Yet at the same time, until the day that Onesimus released him, Philemon was to remain the servant, and he was to... respect and to obey Onesimus. The third difficulty is seen in several marks uh, within, within the, the grammar. One, uh, it, the, the, the verb, submit, is a present tense participle. And you're like, wow, I love grammar. But the fa- l- 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 let me tear this apart. The, 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 the fact that it's present tense tells us this. It is something that is to continually be done. You are to be doing this. It's not something that you just do one time and then forget about it. It's not something you do when you feel like it once in a while. Servants are to be continually, presently respecting and submitting and, and following through uh, with the orders of their masters. And then that, the fact that it's a participle, that there is no verb, there's no true verb in this te- in this uh, sentence, but it's a participle, and that is a describing Word. It's 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 a it is a verbal noun thing that that thinks it's an adjective. Grammar's grammar's crazy sometimes. It's a little confused, but it's functioning like an adjective. And what that means is that Christian slaves ought to be so regularly submissive. They they should be regularly respectful to their masters so much, so consistently. It should be such a qualifying mark of who they are that people would get the idea that there is an, uh, there's a definitive, undeniable difference between an unchristian servant and a Christian servant. There's a qualitative different difference to a Christian slave that makes them better, that makes them worth more, that makes them more desirable to have. Of, they are more attractive. They are of greater quality than a run-of-the-mill uh, slave. I have a Christian slave. And notice also that the Christian slaves were to submit with, with what degree of respect? With, with some respect? You know, when, when they feel like it, when it's, when it's convenient, when they have time? With how, how, uh, how much respect are servants supposed to submit to their masters with? Peter says, with all respect this is not just respect to not get fired this is not uh not just enough respect to be better than the next guy this is as much respect as you can give this is not holding any respect back respect this is bending over backwards respect this is a this is a humble this is a selfless this is a patient and kind and loving respect that even forgives their owner, the respect is not given because of any condition of the owner. This is a respect that does its best to meet and exceed his master's expectations whenever, wherever possible. I I happen to get my employee evaluation with uh, Snoqualmie Valley School District, and we've all I'm purposely holding it back so you don't see which box is marked, but you know you, you've you've. You've seen these, these rubrics before. You know, Here are the different categories that you're being evaluated on. And over here is things like unacceptable, um, marginally okay, but only does so with reluctance, and then mediocre, and then pretty good, and then excellent, you know, he takes the initiative, uh, wants to improve. What Peter is saying is don't be over here, be over here. It is is a respect, it is a desire to serve that exceeds the average. It meets, and if possible, it exceeds what the master expects, whenever, wherever possible. And what makes it even more difficult is to whom they were to show respect. Peter says, show respect, uh, all respect to your masters. The word for master is despoti. What word does that sound like? Despot is a despot usually someone that we want to submit to. Is it, does it sound easy? Does a despot make submission easy? Are they are they usually kind and patient? And no, no, they're not. But this word uh, uh, means someone who has complete control; that they have absolute ownership over the servant. The, mass, the, the despotai isn't someone who just supervises. The despotai isn't someone who just encourages you to take this path or or guides you, you know, you have these choices and he's going to guide you to take this choice. Now, a despotai makes the slave do do what he wants to be done because he owns the slave. And someone may say rightfully, what if my master is a cruel man? What what if he is a complete monster? I'm glad you ask. What does Peter follow up with? Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. Now, the the first two words, uh, adjectives, good and beneficial. This is pointing to someone who. This is describing someone who's upright, someone who's beneficial, desirable. This would be someone who provides for his servants. Beneficial is is, is someone who's considerate, reasonable, fair. And this this is the first. This first is the kind of boss that everyone wants, right? We all want to. You know, it's easy to submit to a guy like that. He makes work great, and I'm sure every boss thinks he's that kind of a boss. He's a kind man. He's a gen- gracious man. He's a patient man. He's fair. He's tolerant. He's, he's forgiving he's patient he's encouraging he he's the kind of man who sets you up to succeed and he gives you whatever you need to complete your task and he may even reward you with a 3 day weekend from time to time it's an easy to submit to kind of despot but and this is where the groan this is where we groan sometimes that it's not only those Masters it's not only the good and the beneficial despots that we are to submit to that that deserve our respect. The Christian slave, the Christian servant is likewise expected to submit to and respect those who are as Peter says, unreasonable to the unreasonable bosses. Now that word is scoliosis. We all know what a what a what a back what a spine with scoliosis is. It, it, it's it's crooked. It's not aligned the way it should be. It's uh, the word means crooked or perverted. And many of us have worked ha, ha, have been under men and women who are have a scoliosis type demeanor. And many of you may, may be tempted to think that, that that sounds like my boss. I mean, he's an absolute tyrant. If I show up five minutes late, he never lets it go. He just keeps at it. Now, as I said, some, some masters were genuinely benevolent and kind. Some were, as, as Peter says, good and beneficial, but most were not. Many, a good many of them were tyrannical. Some had very bad tempers. Some would vent their rage. Their frustration, their disappointment on their slaves, and it was entirely permissible by Roman law. A Roman master could withhold food, could withhold water, pay, housing accommodations, clothes. They could be subjected to corporal punishment, they could be subjected to torture, they could be used as, uh, they, they could be sexually exploited. They could be physically abused, all permissible by Roman law. You know why? Because that's not a person, that's a thing. That's a piece of property. And you can do with it what you want. The master, the Roman master was not obligated to provide a reason or grounds for why he did what he did with his slaves. They could even be summarily executed. Perfectly legal if if that's what the master Wanted to do In in, in a fit of rage He could do that And Peter says "Even, Even those masters Even those masters That abuse you That take away your food That make your life Absolutely miserable For no good reason Submit yourselves And show them the utmost respect Have an excellent behavior Before them Be excellent servants, even to the likes of them. Now, I ask you, how how does your boss compare now? Not as bad, huh? So that's the mandate to submit. And then in verse 19, because he realizes that this can indeed be a very tough pill to swallow. Verse 19 and 20, he gives us the motive to submit. He, Peter, wants to help you to obey this. He wants to encourage the Christian slave, the Christian servant to obey this command. And he tells us why we ought to be submissive and why we ought to be respectful to our boss. Why we should have excellent behavior, why we should look different. When we are in a frustrating and difficult and hard place at work he says for this finds favor doing that finds favor and literally it means this is a grace this is a gracious thing now notice he begins in verse 19 for this finds favor and and look at the end of chapter of a verse 20 He sandwiches this whole thought. He begins and says, this this finds favor. This this is a grace. He finishes, this finds favor. This is a grace. It is a gracious thing to do. It is something that blesses another. It is something that pleases another. The question is, is, who does it please? Who does it bless? Who is it a grace for? Who do you think? What do you think? Well, you cheated because you looked ahead. Yeah. Verse 20 tells us this is a grace to God. It's not a grace to you. It is not it is not primarily a grace to you. It is not a grace to your boss. This is a grace towards God. This finds favor with God. It pleases Him. It makes Him Happy And if, beloved, if there is anybody that deserves to be made happy by our conduct, by our our behavior, if there's anyone that deserves to be graced, if if there's anyone in whom it is good to find favor with, it's good to find favor in God. Do you want to bless God? Do you want to please Him? Then... For the sake of conscience toward Him, bear up under sorrow when suffering unjustly. It pleases God when your faith in Him expresses itself in a self controlled, patient godliness that is able and willing to endure disappointment, frustration, exploitation, harassment, slander persecution, abuse, when you're treated unfairly, when you are held to a double standard with another employee or even the, other, even the boss himself, when your rights are violated, when you're passed up for that raise or that promotion, when your rights are not recognized, when your quality is not recognized, when you're, when you're laid off, when you're unjustly fired simply because he doesn't like you when you're lied about, when you're treated unfairly and unjustly, your faith, your, your faith that pleases God, reminds you regularly. Now get this, your circumstances on this earth, your circumstances in the workplace do not indicate that you have left the love and care of your heavenly Father. Just because you have a horrible boss doesn't mean God is angry with you. Enduring and submitting and respecting even a horrible boss demonstrates to God that you understand there is absolutely no authority on earth that is given to men except that which is given by God. Paul says that in Romans 13 be it your king, be it your master, be it your boss. And it pleases God when you trust him, when you trust that no matter how bad things can get, you always, you always have a heavenly father who's looking out for you and who always cares for you. It pleases him when you trust him in that word. When you're treated hardly, harshly, we don't retaliate. We don't grasp for our rights. We don't grasp for our vindication to be found in the right in the, way that a, in the way that a starving man grasps for a morsel of food. We don't grasp to be found in the right and to be defended in the way that a man in the desert grasps for a cup of water. Rather, we see it's God's place to repay vengeance. He says it is his prerogative to repay absolutely every single evil deed, even those that wicked and unjust men think they've gotten away with. I know people who are paralyzed. They are hamstrung in their circles of friends, in their social circles. They are so terrified of of being hurt again because of past experiences that they are absolutely crippled in their ability to make new friends or to go out and look for work or or to function in society. And ultimately that says they don't trust that God is sovereign and able to work all things together for your good even if you have a horrible, horrible occupational experience. Every single act of extortion, every manipulation, every cheat, every lie, every coercion, every intimidation, every theft, every conspiracy, every single sin that man has ever done will one day be made right and justice will prevail. Faith says and faith knows that God will, will have the last word. Listen to uh, what Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, 5-9. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers. That means you only do your work when your boss is looking. But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good Service render, as to the Lord and not to the men, knowing that whatever good each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord. The Lord will repay you for good. This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And then he balances out and he addresses the masters too. Masters, do the same thing to them. Give up threatening. Knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. If Christian masters can can be given that sobering, uh, harsh reminder to that there that there are consequences. There 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 is a recompense for treating their slaves unjustly. How much worse is it going to be for those who are outside the faith, who have cheated and manipulated and extorted and Coerced and intimidated and stolen from their slaves. When we turn to striking, when we walk, when we when we participate in those walkouts, when we riot or protest or or uh, mutiny or or engage in acts of civil disobedience, when we whine or complain or grumble or mope at work because we don't get what we want, what we think we deserve, it what what, is, what does that tell? The world, what does that tell the unbeliever? It tells them that we don't trust God enough that to make things right, that either he can't make it right outright or that he needs help. And church, that's not a that's not a God that is worthy of worship. That is not a God that is worthy of being entrusted with your soul. Now, Peter gives a negative and a positive inference here. He asks rhetorically, for what credit is there, verse 20, when you, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? What's the implied answer? There is none. There's no credit if you, if you sin and are harshly treated. It's ex- rather, it's expected that you endure it. What's the implication? Don't sin by having a poor behavior. Don't do the things that deserve being disciplined by your master. In other words, do your jobs. And do them well. Don't be late. Don't cheat on your time card. Don't steal office supplies. Don't take company resources. Don't lie to your boss. Don't do unsafe things. Don't do the things on the left side of the evaluation report. Be in the right side. Because if you do, if you, if, you, if you have a poor performance and you do the things that are worthy of being written up, if you do the things that are worthy of being disciplined and being fired, you will get written up, you will get disciplined, you will get let go. And the implication is we have, on, on, that, uh, on that condition, we have no right to feel sorry for ourselves. We have no right to feel sorry for ourselves when we have that poor work ethic. And there's no credit to enduring being fired when, in fact, you deserve to be fired. So Peter is saying, by implication, don't be that kind of worker. If you do wrong, expect to endure whatever discipline your master gives you. But what is commendable, what is pleasing to God, is when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. That is something that puts a smile on God's face. That is something that pleases Him because it tells Him and it tells the critics who are watching you, the unbelievers who are watching you, that ultimately your confidence is not in you. It's not in your boss. It's not in the things and the systems of this world. It's in God. A man named A.W. Pink wrote, As one sees the apparent defeat of the right and the triumphing of the wrong, it seems as though Satan were getting the better of the conflict. But as one looks above instead of around, there is plainly visible to the eye of faith a throne. This, then, is our confidence. God is on that throne. Always. I said last time that if the early church could be expected to honor a man, a crooked, crooked, depraved man like Nero, then we can honor the man in the White House, whoever he is today. And the church can do that because no matter who sat on the earthly throne, God sits on that heavenly throne. And which throne is the throne that matters? D.C. or heaven. Likewise, I implore you, I, I exhort you, I encourage you, I plead with you. If the church could be expected to respect and serve as unto the Lord these despotic, ungodly, cruel, harsh masters. If they could be expected to show respect and to submit to men who treated them as property, who were cruel to them who abused them who beat them and who sometimes even executed them surely surely we can have a noble conduct we can have a selfless respectful serviceful commendable giving attitude to our bosses and our employers especially when they are a little less than perfect we can do that can't we church, I hope that you see that your trials, you don't fall into your trials by accident. I hope you can see that your trials are opportunities for evangelism, to show the unbelieving world what Christ has done and is doing and will do for you. And there are also opportunities for spiritual growth and to Grow in the likeness of the Lord who gave himself up for you. And in the next text, Peter is actually going to take us to the example of Christ. And I look forward to preaching about him. Next time I fill the pulpit, that is.